In that upper room in Jerusalem, where the Last Supper was held, Jesus gave his disciples considerable instructions. Among many things he taught them, he said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Again he said, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Peace is a much-used word nowadays. We hear it on every side, in every newspaper, in every magazine. Men are truly running to and fro all over the earth looking for peace. We think of it as a modern form of salutation, but it's as old as mankind. The people of biblical lands have always greeted each other with peace be unto you or peace be with you. Yet that little section of the earth has always been torn by wars, by captivity and bondage for the people under a succession of rulers. At the time of Christ, they were under the rule of the Roman Empire. Naturally, the Jews expected a Redeemer. Isaiah wrote, For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Peace was not brought to this land called the Holy Land. Even today, the hulks of old tanks and other war machines lie rusting on the sides of the roads. Ever-present soldiers keep vigilant watch along the borders. Nor has peace come to the rest of the world. Yet in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ taught peace. He said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Speaking to his disciples, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. What kind of peace did Christ mean? I think his own acts explain what he meant. After the Last Supper, when Christ had finished his instructions to the apostles, John wrote, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Cedron, where was a garden into which he entered, and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests of Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. Can you match that display of calmness, of peace, 
Here they are coming to take a man they want to kill. And he as much as to say, as much, he says as much, Here I am, take me, but let my friends go. Then when he stood before Pilate, under the pressure of rigid questioning, Pilate could not raise his ire. In perfect peace, he answered his questions. Pilate found no wrong in him. After he was crucified, then resurrected, his first message to his disciples was, Peace be unto you. How is it that we have not discovered the secret of peace when we have been looking for it all through the ages? I'll tell you, we are looking for someone to create it for us, to bring it to us. Edna St. Vincent Millay said, There is no peace on earth today save the peace in the heart at home with God. No man can be at peace with his neighbor who is not at peace with himself. Have you experienced that peace within you because you helped your neighbor rake his lawn or mow his lawn? Have you felt that peace within because you helped your neighbor pick his fruit or harvest his crops? Have you witnessed that peace within because you shoveled the snow off your neighbor's walks? Have you felt that peace which came because you helped someone solve a problem and get a new lease on life? Have you cheered up the sad or made someone feel glad? Did you ever have a guilty conscience? Do you know the turmoil and tumult it can bring to your very soul? It can cause mental and even physical illness. Do you know the blessed relief of rectifying whatever caused this feeling? It may have been an unkind word, a thoughtless act, or it may have gone deeper than that. Until you have adjusted whatever causes a guilty conscience, you cannot hope for peace of mind. Do you at this time have unkind feelings or less than love in your heart for a friend, a neighbor, or any of God's children? Try doing something extra nice for that person and keep it up until all the bitterness has gone from your heart. Have you taught a Sunday school class and felt when you finished that you had really taught someone some principle of the gospel which had really helped him or given him a brighter look on life? Remember the feeling of peace and joy that followed? Have you ever taught someone the gospel and received that feeling of joy because he had accepted what you had been teaching, the thrill of missionary work? Have you sensed the thrill, the peace within your soul, which comes from a knowledge of the gospel and from accepting and living in accordance with the teachings of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you felt the peace from doing temple work, vicarious work for the dead? A key to peace, then, is service. Christ said, But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. Have you ever been aware that all the use of priesthood is service to someone else? Haven't you always had a good feeling of peace within when you have been fulfilling your priesthood duty? Peace, then, comes from service. The Lord has said, For behold, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. Is this not the ultimate of service? To become as God is, then we must eliminate enmity, greed, and selfishness, and all our efforts must be in service to others. The Lord said, 
He who doeth the works of righteousness shall receive his, re- his reward, even peace in this world and eternal life in the world to come. Joseph Smith was an example of utmost peace. In the face of tribulation, though he had been arrested and acquitted 37 times, he knew this time he would not return. On the way from Nauvoo to Carthage, Joseph Smith said, I am going like a lamb to the slaughter, but I am calm as a summer's morning. I have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward all men. I shall die innocent, and it shall be said of me, He was murdered in cold blood. Then at Carthage, Joseph wrote to his wife Emma the following, I am very much resigned to my lot knowing I am justified and have done the best that could be done. Give my love to the children and all who inquire after me. May God bless you all. Isaiah says, And the work of righteousness shall be peace, and the effect of righteousness quietness and assurance forever. The assurance of knowing you are living in accordance with God's will. Our guide on a recent tour in the Holy Land, who was a Jordanian Arab, a Greek Orthodox Catholic, by the name of Sari Rabati, taught us a little Arabian song, Haveno Shalom Aleichem, which translated means, We bring you peace. Yes, Sari, we say to you and to all the world, We bring you peace. We bring you the peace of the gospel that peace which Christ meant when he said, My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. If each person would have peace within his soul, then there would be peace in the family. If there is peace in each family, then there is peace in the nation. If there is peace in the nations, there is peace in the world. Let us not just sing the song, Let there be peace on earth, and let it begin with me. But let's mean it. Make it my goal, your goal. When the Savior comes again, and he will come, he will bring peace, only as we will accept and follow his teachings of service to others and eliminate enmity and unrighteousness. That angel which John saw fly in the midst of a heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, has already come. The gospel of Jesus Christ has been established on the earth, never again to be taken from the earth. His kingdom is already here on earth and is growing rapidly to prepare for his coming. Yes, he shall surely come and bring peace to the earth, but only as we are willing to follow his teachings. This is his work and his kingdom which is the only way to world peace and eternal peace. I so testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. A major recurring theme of this conference, including the seminar seminar of the regional representatives of the Twelve, mentioned directly and indirectly by nearly every speaker, has been the importance and necessity of the priesthood. I want to address my remarks to this subject. 
Its vitality and power on the earth today is greater than at any other time in the period of the world's history. On March 28, 1835, the Prophet Joseph received a singularly important revelation on priesthood, now Section 107. Quote, There are in the Church two priesthoods, namely the Melchizedek priesthood and the Aaronic. The first is called the Melchizedek priesthood because Melchizedek was such a great high priest. Before his day, it was called the Holy Priesthood after the order of the Son of God. All other authorities or offices in the Church are appendages to this priesthood. It is vital that we understand this foregoing thought. President Joseph F. Smith explained a much misunderstood concept. There is no office growing out of the priesthood that is or can be greater than the priesthood itself. It is from the priesthood that the office derives its authority or power. No office gives authority to the priesthood. No office adds to the power of the priesthood. But all offices in the Church derive their power, their virtue, their authority from the priesthood. If our brethren would get this principle thoroughly established in their minds, there would be less misunderstanding in relation to the functions of government in the Church than there is." There are three presiding quorums in the Church chosen from the body of the priesthood. Of the Melchizedek priesthood, three presiding high priests chosen by the body, appointed and ordained to that office, and upheld by the confidence, faith, and prayer of the Church, form a quorum of the presidency of the Church. The twelve traveling counselors are called to be the twelve apostles, or special witnesses of the name of Christ in all the world, and they form a quorum equal in authority and power to the three presidents previously mentioned. The seventy are to act in the name of the Lord under the direction of the twelve in building up the Church and regulating all of the affairs of the same in all nations. What is the priesthood? President John Taylor said, It is the government of God, whether on earth or in the heavens, for it is by that power, agency, or principle that all things are governed on earth or in the heavens. And by that power all things are upheld and sustained. It governs all things. It directs all things and has to do with all things that God and truth are associated with. It is the power of God delegated to intelligences in the heavens and to men on the earth. In order to gain exaltation, a man must obtain, then magnify, the holy priesthood. For whoso is faithful unto the obtaining these two priesthoods, of which I have spoken, and magnifying their calling, 
are sanctified by the Spirit unto the renewing of their bodies. They become the elect of God, and therefore all that my Father hath shall be given him. And this is according to the oath and covenant which belongeth to the priesthood. But we must remember that it is on condition of magnifying the priesthood we obtain. There is great energy being expended and much emphasis given to the operation and administration of the priesthood in the Church today. Therefore, let every man stand in his own office and labor in his own calling, that the system may be kept perfect. Standing in their responsibility, the high priests in the Church today have the overall priesthood responsibility to do genealogical research and perform temple ordinances. Through the priesthood, they are to see to it that everyone in the Church, in proper time and order, saves his kindred dead. This means that all members are to have their personal book of remembrance complete research on at least their four generations, live worthy to obtain a temple recommend, and attend to temple ordinances for the dead. The seventy are to stand in their own office and labor in their own calling, which is priesthood missionary work. The seventy, as missionaries, are specialists in teaching. As members, our strength is in finding and fellowshipping. United, we form a productive team to carry the message of the Restoration to all of our Father's children. Elders, standing in their office and calling, have a place in welfare work. However, they share a major responsibility for the perfecting of the Saints through priesthood home teaching. The President of the Elders' Quorum has the unique calling to administer the gospel to more people in the ward than anyone else except the bishop. Priesthood home teachers are to visit the house of each member and exhort them to pray vocally and in secret and to attend to all family duties, to watch over the Church always and be with and strengthen them. See that there is no iniquity in the Church, neither hardness with each other, neither lying, backbiting, nor evil speaking, and see that the Church meet together often, and also see that all the members do their duty. Each one of these specific duties are designed by the Lord to strengthen the home. You will notice that the word teach is mentioned only indirectly in this scriptural instruction. Perhaps if we as home teachers could catch the whole vision of what our duty is, then the teaching would eventually be done by the ones the Lord ordained to give instruction in the home. Though priesthood home teaching has not yet come into the dignity of its calling, we may yet come to understand that it is one of the loftiest concepts of service in the Church. One thing is certain, that in this Church 
It is service that saves. The priesthood in this church is a mighty bulwark against the advance of evil. There is no power on earth that can withstand the thrust of the adversary except a body of righteous men who honor their priesthood in their homes. Nor have the young men of the Aaronic priesthood been neglected. The Lord in His wisdom has seen fit to call you young men early in your lives to service in the kingdom. Sometimes, because you do not understand the program of the Church, you think that the Church is neglecting the vital issues. On the contrary, in the vernacular you want a piece of the action. In this Church there is a call to youth, and there is plenty to do, if you will but follow the counsel of your leaders. It is not intended that you just take the bit in your mouth and run. A wise saying aptly applies, The hand that holds the reins is not the power that pulls the load. The vigor and energy of youth, coupled with the wisdom of mature men, make a great team. That is the way the Lord designed the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthood to work together. Why do we call upon you to live in purity? So that you will be fit servants to make your contribution to the kingdom of God. Sixty-six years ago, President Joseph F. Smith said, We expect to see the day, if we live long enough, when every council of the priesthood in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints will understand its duty, will assume its own responsibility to the uttermost, according to the intelligence and ability possessed by it. When that day shall come, there will not be so much necessity for work which is now being done by the auxiliary organizations, because it will be done by the regular quorums of the priesthood. The Lord designed and comprehended it from the beginning, and He made provision in the Church whereby every need may be met and satisfied through the regular organizations of the priesthood." End quote. We are just beginning to see the day when the strongest men in each office of the priesthood are to be called to priesthood leadership. We call upon those of you who are now prospective elders to rise up to your potential. Become the spiritual leaders in your home. Take upon yourselves the mantle of this responsibility. Perform the service that will save and exalt you and your loved ones in the kingdom of God. This is no ordinary call to serve, nor is this just a frantic appeal. It is a solemn warning to get your personal life in order, to regulate the affairs of your family, to reach out to your fellow men, and bless the lives of others through this divine power. This Church, with its inspired leadership, is already battling the adversary. The struggle in which we are engaged is not some distant day in the future. It is now. If we do not see this clearly, it is because we do not understand the signals which come from the Brethren today. After listening to conference for these three days, 
the message of this conference is clear. It is to arise, assume your priesthood responsibility, and carry off the work of the Lord. This has not been a common conference, nor is it just the best conference ever. We have heard a clarion call to repent, to begin now to magnify this great power which is vouchsafed in this Church. O oh, my brethren, I plead with you to rise up, shake off the shackles of indolence and sloth, and go forward. In the encouraging words of the Prophet Joseph, Brethren, shall we not go on in so great a cause? Go forward and not backward. Courage, brethren, and on, on to the victory. I want to testify that Jesus is the Christ. I testify that He is the great High Priest forever. I testify that God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, did appear to the Prophet Joseph Smith and instituted anew in this day the Church of Jesus Christ, empowering him with God's power. I testify that these men hold the keys of the Holy Priesthood, that there is power in and inspiration in what these brethren say, that there is no group of men like this in all the world. They have not come to position through a political party, nor have they won a popularity contest. They have been called by prophecy and by the laying on of hands. And we will do well to listen to the inspired counsel that they give us from time to time. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Surely all of us have been conscious of the fact that there has been a very powerful spirit with us in this session this morning. Few times, I suppose, have I desired with such anxiety for the sustaining power of the Spirit as I discuss a very delicate and difficult subject. There are many young people in our audience today. It is to them, particularly to the teenagers, that I speak. The subject should be of great interest to you. Why stay morally clean? I approach this subject with the deepest of reverence. This may surprise some, for this subject is the most talked about and sung about, joked about of any subject. Almost always it is talked about immodestly. I intend to sustain modesty, not to offend it as I venture to speak on this delicate subject. Young people, my message is of very deep importance to you. It concerns your future happiness. 
There are some things that I say that may be new to you who have not read the scriptures. In the beginning, prior to your mortal birth, you lived with our Heavenly Father, and he is real. He actually lives. There are those living upon the earth who bear witness of his existence. We have heard his servants do so in this session. He knew you there, and because he loved you and was anxious for your happiness and for your eternal growth, he wanted you to be able to choose freely and grow through the power of correct choice so that you may become much as he is. To achieve this, it was necessary for us to leave his presence. Something like going away to school. A plan was presented, and each agreed to leave the presence of our Heavenly Father to experience life in mortality. Two great things were in store for us as we came into this world. One, we would receive a mortal body created in the image of God. Through it, by power of control, we might achieve eternal life and eternal happiness. And two, we would be tried and tested in such a way that we could grow in strength and in spiritual power. Now this first purpose is wonderfully important, for this body given us will be resurrected and will serve us through the eternities. Under the plan, Adam and Eve were sent to the earth as our first parents. They could prepare physical bodies for the first spirits to be introduced into this life. There was provided in our bodies, and this is sacred, a power of creation, a light, so to speak, that could kindle other lights. This gift to be used only within the sacred bonds of marriage. Through the exercise of this power of creation, a mortal body may be conceived, a spirit enter into it, and a new soul born into this life. This power is good. It can create and sustain family life, and it is in family life that we find the fountains of happiness. It is given to virtually every individual who is born into mortality. It is a sacred and a significant power, and I repeat, my young friends, that this power is good. You who are teenagers, like every other son and daughter of Adam and Eve, have this power within you. The power of creation, or may I say procreation, is not just an incidental part of the plan. It is essential to it. Without it, the plan could not proceed. The misuse of it may disrupt the plan. Much of the happiness that may come to you in this life will depend on how you use this sacred power of creation. The fact that you young men can become fathers and that you young women can become mothers is of utmost importance to you. As this power develops within you, it will prompt you in the search for a companion and empower you to love and to hold him. I repeat, this power to act in the creation of life is sacred. You can someday have a family of your own. Through the exercise of this power, you can invite children to live with you. 
little boys and little girls who will be your very own, created in a way in your own image. You can establish a home, a dominion of power and influence and opportunity, and this carries with it great responsibility. This creative power carries with it strong urges and desires. You have felt them already in the changing of your attitudes and in your interests. As you move into your teens, almost all of a sudden, a boy or a girl becomes something new and intensely interesting. You will notice the changing of form and features in your own body and in others, and you will experience the early whisperings of physical desire. It was necessary that this power of creation have at least two dimensions. One, it must be very strong, and two, it must be more or less constant. This power must be strong, for most men by nature seek adventure, and except for the compelling persuasion of these feelings, men would be reluctant to accept the responsibility of sustaining a home and a family. This power must be constant, too, for it becomes a binding tie in family life. You are old enough, I think, to look around you in the animal world, and you soon realize that where this power of creation is a fleeting thing, where it expresses itself only in season, there is no family life. It is through this power that life continues, and a world full of trials and fears and disappointments can be changed into a kingdom of hope and joy and happiness. Each time a child is born, the world somehow is renewed in innocence. Again, I want to tell you, young people, that this power within you is good. It is a gift from God our Father, and in the righteous exercise of it, as in nothing else, we may come close to him. We can have in a small way much that our Father in heaven has as he governs us, his children. No greater school or testing place can be imagined. Is it any wonder, then, that in the Church that marriage is so sacred and so important? Can you understand why your marriage, which releases these creative powers for your use, should be the most solemnly considered and the most carefully planned step in your life. Ought we to consider it unusual that the Lord directed the temples be constructed for the performing of these marriage ceremonies? Now, there are other things that I will tell you as a warning. In the beginning, there was one among us who rebelled at the plan of our Heavenly Father. He vowed to destroy and to disrupt the plan. He was prevented from having a mortal body and was cast out, limited forever from establishing a kingdom of his own. He became satanically jealous. He knows that this power of creation is not just an incident to the plan, but a key to it. He knows that if he can entice you to use this power prematurely, to use it too soon, or to misuse it in any way, you may well lose your opportunities for eternal progression. He is an actual being from the unseen world. He has great power, 
and he will use it to persuade you to transgress those laws set up to protect these sacred powers of creation. In former times, he was too cunning to confront one with an open invitation to be immoral, but rather sneakingly and quietly he would tempt young and old alike to think loosely or evilly of these sacred powers, to bring down to a vulgar or to a common level that which is sacred and beautiful. His tactics have changed now. He describes it only as an appetite to be satisfied. He teaches that there are no attendant responsibilities to the use of this power. Pleasure, he will tell you, is its sole purpose. His devilish invitations appear on billboards. They are coined into jokes and written into the lyrics of songs. They stare at us now from almost all magazines. They are acted out in theaters and television. There are magazines and films, you know. You know the word, young people, pornography. Open, wicked persuasions to pervert and misuse this sacred power. You grow up in a society where before you is the constant invitation to tamper with these sacred powers. I want to counsel you, and I want you to remember these words. Do not let anyone at all touch or handle your body. Not anyone. Those who tell you otherwise proselyte you to share their guilt. We teach you to maintain your innocence. Turn away from any who would persuade you to experiment with these life-giving powers. That such indulgence is widely accepted in society today is not enough. For both parties to willingly consent to such indulgence is not enough. To imagine that this is a normal expression of affection is not enough to make it right. The only righteous use of this sacred power is within the covenant of marriage. Never abuse these sacred powers. And now, my young friends, I must tell you soberly and seriously that God has declared in unmistakable language that misery and sorrow will follow the violations of the laws of chastity. Wickedness never was happiness. These laws were set up to guide all of his children in the use of this gift. Now, he does not have to be spiteful or vengeful in order that punishment will come from the breaking of the moral code. These laws are established of themselves. Crowning glory awaits you if you live worthily. The loss of the crown may well be punishment enough. Often, very often, we are punished as much by our sins as we are for them. Now, I'm sure there is within the sound of my voice more than one young person who already has fallen into transgression. Some of you young people, I am sure, almost innocent of any intent, but persuaded by the enticements and the temptations, already have misused this sacred power. Know then, my young friends, that there is a great cleansing power. 
and know that you can be clean. If you are outside of the Church, the covenant of baptism itself represents, among other things, a washing and a cleansing. For those of you inside of the Church, there is a way, not entirely painless, but certainly possible. You can stand clean and spotless before him. Guilt can be gone, and you can be at peace. Go to your bishop. He holds the key to this cleansing power. Then one day you can know the full and righteous expressions of these powers and the attendant happiness and joy in righteous family life. In due time, within the bonds of the marriage covenant, you can yield yourself to those sacred expressions of love which have as their fulfillment the generation of life itself. Someday you will hold a little boy or a little girl in your arms and know the two of you have acted in partnership with our Heavenly Father in the creation of life. Because the youngster belongs to you, you may then come to love someone more than you love yourself. This experience can come insofar as I know only through having children of your own, or perhaps through fostering children born of another and yet drawn close into family covenants. Some of you may not experience the blessings of marriage. Protect nonetheless these sacred powers of creation, for there is a great power of compensation that may well apply to you. Through this love, loving one more than you love yourself, you become truly Christian. Then you know, as few others know, what the term Father means when it is spoken of in the scriptures. You may then feel something of the love and concern that he has for us. It should have great meaning that of all of the titles of respect and honor and admiration that could be given him, that God himself he, who is the highest of all, chose to be addressed simply as Father. Protect and guard your gift. Your actual happiness is at stake. Eternal family life, now only in your anticipation and dreams, can be achieved because our Heavenly Father has bestowed this choicest gift of all upon you this power of creation, it is the very key to happiness. Hold this gift as sacred and pure. Use it only as the Lord has directed. My young friends, there is much happiness and joy to be found in this life. I can testify of that. I picture you with a companion whom you love and who loves you. I picture you at the marriage altar entering into sacred covenants. I picture you in a home where love has its fulfillment. And I picture you with little children about you and see your love growing with them. I cannot frame this picture. I would not if I could. 
for it has no bounds. Your happiness will have no ends if you obey these laws. I pray God's blessings upon you, our youth. May our Heavenly Father watch over you and sustain you and give you power that in the expression of this sacred gift you may draw close to him. He lives. He is our Father. Of this I bear witness. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.